You're listening to a message from Christian Life Ministries in Coventry, a dynamic, growing church in the heart of the nation. We pray that God will speak to you through this word and impact your life for His glory. Here we are. It's Sunday morning. It's week four of the Invited series. So before we go any further, let's pray. Father, we want to say thank you just for the beauty of your church and the different people that you have brought to be at your table. And we thank you for the the truths that are coming out through this series. But we just, as we come to your word again, we ask, please, would you pour out your Holy Spirit to help us to understand your word and for it to go deep into our hearts and to empower us to be the church that you have in your mind and in your heart. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, hopefully you've been able to track with us through the last four weeks as we've been considering this invitation to God's table, inspired by those words of Jesus, Luke 13, 29, many will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and find their place at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. We've been considering this idea that everyone is invited to take their place, a life-transforming place at God's table. And also that as we do that, the family that we're part of changes. Who is at our table changes, which is why we've issued the Dine at Mine Challenge. I hope that hasn't passed you by. We're encouraging everyone to invite over someone or some people who maybe they wouldn't normally hang out with. Invite them. If you've not done this yet, then can I encourage you this week to think about how you can invite someone or someone's to dine at mine. We've explored through Scripture the consistent track of God's heart for a diverse church. We looked at the diversity of that early sending church in Antioch, the, the early church fathers and the diversity there as Christianity spread further and got established. And then last week, Mark took us to Acts chapter 10. I've got to say last week, Mark taught us, taught us absolutely brilliantly. If you haven't yet heard last week's message, please make sure you catch up on the podcast or on YouTube. We were looking at how Cornelius and subsequently the Gentiles, who had been outsiders to the purposes of God until that moment, were unequivocally brought in to God's plan as he poured out his Holy Spirit on them. And it was beautiful to finish the service last week praying with others. I prayed with Hermione and she prayed in French and it was just just lovely, precious. Today we're in Acts again as we build on these last few weeks, but also we're going to get a little bit more practical this morning. So if you want a title, it's Best Served with Grace. This is, if you like, something of a serving suggestion as we come together at God's table. Now I'm guessing that we've all seen serving suggestions. You know, when you're at the supermarket, you're going down the aisles, you've seen the packets of the stuff that you buy, and there's these pictures on the front of beautiful food. Beautiful food, wonderfully prepared, the finest things. Uh, looks terrific, but in reality bears little or no resemblance to what's actually in the box. Yeah? You know the one. This is a serving suggestion. Let me just take, for example, uh, I wonder if we can talk for a minute about Weetabix. I know maybe many of you don't have Weetabix. In fact, I wonder, who has Weetabix for breakfast? Okay, quite a few. Just show me, have you ever had Weetabix for breakfast? Okay, so we know what Weetabix is. This is good. Uh, We're going to have a look on the screen. I don't know how you have your Weetabix. Uh, This is the serving suggestion. I mean, that looks pretty good, doesn't it? 
There's fresh figs, walnuts, we've got yogurt, we've got berry compote. This is tasty, nutritious. What a beautiful vision of breakfast. Except that if you buy that box and you take it home and tomorrow morning you have your breakfast, what you will actually have in your bowl will look more like this. It's a reality, isn't it? We go down the supermarket. The truth is that if you want to live in the full experience of the first picture, you need to add something. There's additional things that you need to get if you want to live up to the vision that has been painted. And I hope that in these last three weeks, thank you, we can move on from the Weetabix slide. Uh, that's going to be quite distracting. Hopefully in the last three weeks, we've been seeing a picture be painted through the teaching, through the preaching, through even the diversity stories that we've heard. We've seen this picture of God's heart for his church. This picture, this vision of a church of people from all tribes, all nations, all peoples brought together through Christ and sharing together in a unity colored with incredible diversity. And the truth is that for many of us, this vision resonates in our hearts and our spirits. We long for it. We love it. We know that it's good, that it's got something of God's heart in it. We desire it. We know it will make us, uh, our experience richer, our perspectives broader, and it will make us more effective than if we do stuff on our own. In our spirits, we say yes and amen to this vision and picture. But the picture that we see and the vision that's being put before us is best served with grace. It's best served with grace. You see, we see this vision of this table. It can only ever come about through the grace of God, through his redeeming work at the cross. In fact, this is grace. It's the benefits of God's provision that we've not earned, that we've not deserved, but that have been made freely available to us because Jesus Christ paid the price for them. He opened the way into God's throne room so that we can get access anytime for whatever we lack, whenever we have need. But this vision requires God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. That's what brings us to the table. But it's also going to require God's grace flowing through us to each other to make this vision a reality. We need to add something. We need to add something more. We need to add grace because this is best served with grace. So we're going to go to Acts chapter 9 this morning. If you've got a Bible or a device and you want to pull it out, well, let's go there now. And this happens just a little couple of years before what Mark was telling us about reading about last week. And we're going to hear a little bit more of Saul. It begins at verse 1, saying, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And let me just cut in here. So there's this persecution going on. Saul is right in the middle of it. And Saul is heading from Jerusalem to Damascus. And he's got permission to take prisoner anyone who is a follower of Jesus and to drag them off to Jerusalem. And on the way there, Jesus appears to him, speaks to him, challenges him. He sees this bright light, falls to the ground. As a result of this encounter, Saul can't see anything. He is rendered blind. And he has to be led to Damascus by his friends. And he's resting in a house there. And this is where we meet 
Ananias. And we're going to cut in now at verse 10. It says, In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up, he was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. So here we join this guy, Saul. He's persecuting the believers, uttering murderous threats, and outworking them. It must have been terrifying to be a Christian and to know that Saul was on his way. He was heading in your direction with the authority to deal with you and drag you off. But on the way, Jesus met him in a vision, met him by his spirit on the road. And my focus isn't actually this morning on Saul, although that's very interesting to look at, but rather on the disciple that we meet here, Ananias. I wonder if we can say Ananias. Ananias. That's, that's pretty good. You see, Ananias is going to show us something this morning that comes and is needed right at the very heart of this message that everyone is invited we are told that Ananias is a disciple, he's a Christian, he doesn't seem to be an apostle, he's not one of the big hitters, this is just a guy who's following Jesus. And the Lord calls to him in a vision, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, Saul is there, a man from Tarsus, he's seen a vision of you coming and placing his hands on you to restore sight. I don't know if Ananias had ever healed anyone before. I don't know if he'd ever prayed for anyone who was blind before or seen their sight restored. We don't hear of Ananias before or after this. But Ananias' response to the Lord is, is interesting and perfectly reasonable. He's like, I've heard about this guy, Lord. I've heard. I've heard the reports. I've heard the experiences. I've heard what he did to your people, the harm he's been doing. And now he's coming here to do more. You see, to Ananias, this does not seem like a good idea at all. It's like, why would I go looking for this man? This is looking for trouble. I think he's wondering whether God even knows who this guy really is and that he can't be trusted. You see, Ananias knows some of the backstory, some of the history. It's, it's reached his ears. There's some baggage that's making him wary. And there's evidence to him that suggests that this is a very bad idea. And I have sympathy with Ananias. I think looking at the facts, I might have felt very, very similar. But God essentially replies to him, thanks for the update, thanks for the intel, now go. I've had some equally brief discussions with the Lord on things where my opinion has not really been needed. 
He says, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. You know, God is so gracious in who he chooses to use. So gracious in who he chooses to use. He chooses people who don't deserve it. Now, when I experience that and see that in my own life, I think that's amazing and wonderful. When I see that and observe that in other people's lives, I think, Lord, are you sure? Are you sure you don't need to rethink that? Do you need me to fill you in on the backstory, Lord? Because I've heard some things. But what we see in Ananias of how he responds is just brilliant and inspirational because he goes. Even though he doesn't trust Saul, he trusts God. And he yields to God's choice because God has chosen this man to play a part in bringing the gospel. And so what Ananias does is he goes to where Saul is. He leaves where he is. He goes to the place where Saul is. He places his hands on him. He touches him. He calls him brother. Brother. Brother Saul, he says. Bro. Yeah. And he ministers to him as Jesus had told him to do. They see a few verses later, we didn't read this this morning, but if you were to read on to verse 26, you see that Saul makes it to Jerusalem, and he tries there to join the disciples, but they were all so afraid of him, they would not believe that he was a true disciple. They would not embrace him. And Ananias could have been the same. I'm sure that as he approached that house, walking along Straight Street to find Judas' house, I think his hands were probably shaking. I think he was thinking, maybe this is the last time I walk down this road. Could all of these things have been going through his mind? But he went to where he was. He placed his hands on him. He called him brother. And he ministered to him that God had sent him. Ananias was willing to accept Saul. He was willing to accept that God had a plan for him and his purposes. And so he was willing to accept him. And in that moment, what is happening is Saul gets his first experience of the grace of God. Saul gets to taste what the grace of Jesus tastes like when you deserve to be judged and you deserve to be rejected, but instead you are accepted and you are welcomed and you are ministered to. This is grace. Saul had persecuted the followers of Jesus, been involved in killing them, but now Jesus sends one of his own followers to accept him, to welcome him, extend grace to him, heal him, restore him, and fill him with his spirit. What grace. What grace. No wonder the New Testament letters that were written by Saul, who changes his name to Paul, are so filled with discussion of the grace of God. Now, of course, it's normal and healthy when we're moving towards someone to wonder, can I trust this person? If I'm going to share something personal, if I'm going to make myself vulnerable, can I trust them? And the reality is that if we're going to sit at this metaphorical table together, if we're going to journey, it's it's relational connection. It's sharing things about ourselves. It's making ourselves known. And actually, this becomes a critical question. Can I trust them? Will I be accepted or judged? Will I be treated with grace? And how are we going to treat one another? 
The truth is sometimes, especially when we come to people who are a little bit different to ourselves, inadvertently we can move on from the question, can I trust them, and develop our own answer based on hearsay and media headlines that put people into broad social categories and speak of them in ways that the media think will either sell newspapers or increase clicks. And if we're not careful, we don't explore anything of the actual person. We don't hear the story of their life. We don't try to see the individual, the, the facets and the layers to their identity and where they've journeyed, where they've lived, where they were brought up, what they've experienced. We don't seek to really find the person that God has made in his image and has called for purpose. In fact, with those who are different to ourselves, we're much more likely to judge than to accept. We're less likely to show grace. But this table that we've been speaking of, where everyone is invited, that we have come to by grace, it requires us to come to the table and treat others with grace, with acceptance and not judgment, trusting God that in his purposes he is at work. And Ananias models this for us so beautifully. Acceptance, not judgment. He serves Saul with grace. Do you know what happens? It opens up the spreading of the gospel through the work of Saul across Europe, across Asia. Most of the letters of the New Testament were written by this man as he expresses this outworking of grace. This moment is the foundation of it. What a significant, powerful, and fruitful choice by Ananias. Probably for the rest of his life, it doesn't matter that he didn't get a mention because everything else that gets attributed to Paul, who was Saul, it only happened because of Ananias. Because he went. Because he trusted God. And he went and showed grace and welcomed someone in. Now, I am aware that not everyone should be trusted. I do live in the real world as you do. I know there's a time for us to have boundaries around our lives, especially if we're needing to process some pain or heal, if we have been or we are raw in our emotions. In those seasons, it is appropriate for us to be more protective about who we move towards as we get help to journey what has been painful or damaging to us. And maybe in that process, you need to, as a minimum, share with a trusted friend. You may need to get counseling or therapy if you've been hurt. And there's some ways within church that you can uh, approach and get some help. You can speak to your life group leader. You can come to the listening cafe. You can come to the prayer team. They will pray for you, but they can also direct you to some more help. You can speak directly to a member of the pastoral team or the staff team. Or if you prefer to do something that feels a little bit less face-to-face, -face, there are also a couple of email addresses. Pastoralcare at clmchurch.co.uk. That's picked up by Pam Ruck, who's our pastoral support coordinator. Or RJ at CLM Church. That stands for racial justice. That gets picked up by Donald Brownmark. If you need some help, please reach out, because the Lord wants you to be whole. He wants you to be healed. He doesn't want you to carry that pain any further. We have members of our pastoral team, uh, including uh, a qualified counselor. They've experienced racism themselves, and they can help you journey forward. We're getting practical here today, because this journey, it's best served with grace, but sometimes we have to position ourselves to receive grace. So we've got this vision of the church, 
And for us as we move forward with grace, I just want to outline, really just front up three problems that we can face, which means for us that grace is essential. The first one of these is the problem of shared history. Now, I was taught history at school. I took history GCSE. I got a decent grade. But what I didn't, well, there's many things you didn't learn. You learn a little bit of history, don't you, in GCSE. I didn't learn, and I've come to understand more recently, was the extent of Britain's shared history with many, many, many nations of the world who became British colonies, part of the British Empire. And as I have learned more recently, although the exact rule of empire looked different in different places, there was rule, there was domination, and pretty much universally, it involved racial hierarchy, as Mark mentioned last week, where white people were placed in positions of superiority. Now, of course, the empire itself unraveled. Nations, one by one, reclaimed their independence, but, but without seeming any acknowledgment of any level of wrongs that had been done, including the use of racial hierarchy to subjugate others. And some of the racism which we might see or hear or some of us in the room experience is a perpetuation, it's a legacy of what was considered acceptable in another era, but has never actually been called out. It's never been publicly repented of. Now, I know that may all seem very, very heavy for a Sunday morning. Stay with me. But the truth is that if I'm going to sit at the table with Mary, my Kenyan sister and friend, or with Uncle Donald, my Sierra Leonean brother, or with Pam Billy Fon, my Nigerian friend, or, and I could go on, or even when we travel to Singapore and sit with a Singaporean pastor. I mean, there's, every, there's so many nations around the world. There's shared history. And those people, they may be cool about the shared history, but also they may be carrying deep pain through what they or their families or their people in recent or distant memory have suffered. And if I sit at the table and I speak carelessly, ignorantly, about things that have caused them pain or caused harm to their people. Maybe even I don't realize it, but I can still do it. Then what it does is it increases their pain at the table where they thought they were safe. And they're not sure if I can be trusted. Now, maybe you need to learn some history. There are some resources on CLM's website. They're way, way, way from ex being exhaustive, but there's a few things to get you started. If you just click on resources and then forward slash racial justice. There's some books to read. There's some programs you can watch so that we're not completely ignorant of UK's shared history. The truth is any nation can have additional shared history with other nations and peoples. True Vine, which is a church in Lebanon that we connect with, they've been working with refugees. They have people who have come to Christ. Syrians who came as refugees over the border from both sides of a civil war. And now they're sitting at the table together with Lebanese people, many of whom have lived through many years of Syrian military, Syrian military occupation in their own country, because that only ceased in 2005. So you've got all these people around the table, there's shared history, shared conflict, and it's complex. Of course, we can't know everything, but it's good to be aware that we don't know everything. 
It's hard to know how to deal with our shared history, whether you know, it might cause us pain or there might need to be healing. We may carry bitterness or anger, embarrassment, shame, grief, all valid responses to some of what we may find. But our shared history, probably whoever we are and wherever we're from, it means when we sit down at the table with those from other nations and people groups, it requires grace. It's best served with grace. And then, of course, there's a different problem. It's the problem of different perspectives. As Mark explained last week, we all see things differently. We all have a different perspective. You may have heard the saying that there's always three, at least three sides to every story. My side, your side, and the truth. If you've never heard that, it's a useful one to remember. See, the truth is we can all be in the same room, observe the same things, hear the same conversation, but what we recall of it, what our perspective is of what took place can be different. And we can often, all of us, can approach life and relationships through the lens of needing to be right. So I'm going to be the one who was right about what actually took place. We can sometimes think there's one right way, there's one right answer, there's one right view, and amazingly, they're all mine. Yeah? It's hard to think that we're not the ones who are right. And so often we then approach relationships looking for those who agree with us or trying to make people agree with us. You know, one right answer is really great if you're in maths. If you're in a maths lesson, that's good. But in relationships, one right answer is not that helpful because we all have different perspectives. I wonder, John, could you just throw this to me? It can be a little bit like this. Um, we face a problem and I'm looking at the problem, and I'm saying, I know this is mainly a yellow problem. This problem is yellow. But, um, you know, if I say to Gabriel, you know, this problem is yellow, do you agree with me? What, what, um, what, why, why do you not agree with me? Because it's pink. And Gabriel said, no, it's pink. This is a pink problem. This is definitely a pink problem. We could argue about this all day, just standing here like this. No, 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 it's yellow. It's pink. It's yellow. Okay, how much of that goes on in life? Quite a lot. The reality is that unless one of us moves and just goes to see what it looks like from the other person's perspective, or we explore the problem long enough to go, oh, it's not quite as straightforward as I thought. Nice catch, Jonathan. We all have different perspectives. And normally, we don't see that perspective unless we make an effort to do so. We will just see what's right in front of our eyes because it seems so plain and obvious and surely the other person must be wrong. You know, this kind of stuff, this becomes really evident when you get married and you try and uh, have conversations with someone. And I thought I might be able to tell some stories about this today because Pastor Martin's away, he's in Singapore, he's not on the front row to contest anything. I could get my side of the story heard today. But then I saw him in the chat on YouTube, so none of that. I'm just going to need to move on. Um, I reckon somebody might have told him anyway, so I think I'm safest not to go there. But the truth is, friends, the quest of life is not to be right, although we can feel like it is. Whether that's at work or in marriage or raising kids or in our friendships or even in church, even when we're trying to hold to biblical truth, that's important. But we must grasp that there are different perspectives, and when we embrace them, we become bigger people. And if we're going to fulfill God's vision of a diverse church being family at the table, we're going to need to embrace the perspectives of others. And that, friends, requires grace. It requires grace. And then 
Thirdly, there's the problem of offense. That even if we manage to navigate our shared history together, even as we seek to embrace each other's perspectives, we are all human. We are all fallen, and we can all be hurt, and we can take offense at one another. And as we sit at the table together, this actually becomes more likely. I don't know if, as families who are represented here, if you sit together, if you eat together regularly, daily, whilst this is a great thing to do for the strength over time of your relationships, it is not a place of peace when you come to the table. If you have children and you sit with them every day to eat, you know that the table is not always a place of peace. I know this isn't just my family. I know it's not just us. Sometimes we annoy one another. Sometimes we're inconsiderate of one another. Sometimes we offend one another. Sometimes the same argument goes over day after day after day. And as a mother, you think, why have I cooked a meal just for this to happen again? Anyway, now I've got that off my chest. Let's move on. <laughs> Friends, we need to deal with offense when we hurt one another. I preached a message earlier this year on February the 20th. It's called, Are We All Right? We looked at what Jesus taught us about how to deal with offense. And if you missed it or if you need to hear that again, then that's February the 20th. You can find it on the podcast. But friends, if somebody hurts you, please don't label them as toxic. Block them. Vow to never speak to them again and then just go and tell other people what they did to you. This is what the world does. But the world hasn't tasted grace. The world doesn't have grace. So we can't expect something different of them, but let's not do it the same way. If someone hurts you, please seek to explain to them when they've hurt you. Do it gently if you can, although I know sometimes that's difficult. If someone is angry with you when they talk to you because they're hurt, please don't focus on their anger. Please try and read what's going on and think, how can I help? How can I apologize? How can I better understand? When we've hurt someone, even if it was unintentional, and even if we don't fully understand how they've taken offense at what we did, please apologize. Say sorry, sincerely. If you find it hard to say the word sorry, then can I suggest that you practice in private? I know we laugh. There are some people in life who cannot say the word sorry because they struggle to accept that they're wrong. It's quite easy to practice in private, but we do need to sometimes. And another really useful phrase for us to practice is, I was wrong. I was wrong. They require grace. They require me to admit, I'm not quite as great as I thought that I was. But they, these phrases are like rocket fuel in their power to heal offense, to help us to sit at the table and to stay at the table together. If you've ever shared a house, if you've ever been part of a family, then you know the words sorry and I was wrong are potentially the most powerful words. And when we don't use them, that also has a very powerful effect. We need grace. It's best served with grace. I wonder if I can invite the band to come and join me. See, throughout Scripture, we see this vision, this beautiful picture of God's heart for a diverse church, a family from all nations united in Christ. But it is best served with grace. 
it requires grace. The truth is, friends, it's grace that brings us to the table and gives us a place there. Grace is the starting place. Grace is the foundation. It's like grace is the lifeblood of this family. Grace is the DNA that makes us all part of this one thing. As the message version of Ephesians 2 puts it, it says, it was only yesterday that you outsiders to God's way had no idea about any of this. We were all outsiders. But he goes on now, because of Christ, dying that death, shedding that blood, you who were once out of it altogether are in on everything. Friends, this is grace, that we were outsiders and we were brought in, that Christ paid to make everything available to us. And I know I've spelled out some problems today. You think, maybe I don't need the problem spelling out. I can see the problems. I've got more I could add to your list. But friends, however many problems there might be, they are overcome by grace. They're overcome by grace, and this is the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. The day-to-day reality of what Christ has made available to us. What we don't deserve, what we don't have in ourselves, His grace meets us. His grace is available to make up the shortfall, not just of what's needed for our relationship with him, but what is needed for our relationship with one another around the table. Hebrews puts it like this, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We've been given access to the throne for whenever we might need it. When we're offended, when we are hurt, when we're in pain, when we're embittered, when we're angry, when we're carrying shame, when we've messed up, His grace, friends, His grace since the cross is available if we will go to the throne to receive it. If we'll go. Can I just say that going to the throne to receive it is not a complex process. It sounds a bit like this. Jesus, I need more grace. Please give me more grace. That's what it looks like to go to the throne of grace with confidence, to ask for what we need. This journey requires grace with one another, but we have to ask him. James wrote, you do not have because you do not ask God. It's true that sometimes we choose to not have grace for one another. We choose to stay angry. We choose to stay hurt. We want someone to pay. We think they don't deserve grace. And of course, they don't. That's the nature of grace. It's undeserved. But friends, grace is at the heart of our own place at the table. And to choose a way other than grace is always a very dangerous choice for a follower of Jesus because it rejects the nature of the family we have been brought into and the means by which we have been. But there remains an abundance of grace available. Some things might be struggling economically, but God's economy is in fine form. There is no lack, there is no shortage, it is not about to be depleted, it is not gonna run out, it is available. And it will not be withheld. Because the cross opened up forever, a flow of grace from heaven 
to the earth, that whatever problems we might list, they are overwhelmed by grace. In a moment, I'm simply going to pray, and we're going to invite the grace of God. I believe the Lord's going to heal some people today, things that you've carried in your heart. Even through the worship earlier, as we brought our love to the Lord, there's, there's some people who've carried something of rejection, and there's a, his power here today to, to break that off you, to heal your heart. But it's all through the cross. There's a very old hymn, Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. The second verse says this, on the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide, and through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above and heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. It's a third verse. We sometimes sing the others, but we don't often sing this one. It says, in thy truth thou dost direct me by thy spirit through thy word and thy grace my need is meeting. As I trust in thee, my Lord, of thy fullness thou art pouring thy great love and power on me without measure, full and boundless, drawing out my heart to thee. I wonder if we can stand together and open our hearts to the Lord this morning. Father, we thank you again this morning for the cross. We thank you for your grace to every single one of us here in this place today, undeserving as we are. We deserved your judgment, but you moved towards us with acceptance and with kindness. We thank you for the tide of grace that sweeps towards us because of the cross and all that you have made available to us. So, Father, we just respond to you this, today. As we desire to be the church that you call us to be. We want to walk in the full measure of all that you have for us, a united, diverse church of all peoples and all nations. But we know, Jesus, we need more grace. Please give us more grace. Even in this moment, Holy Spirit, please would you minister grace into your people, where there's pain, where there's hurt, where there's anger, where there's shame, where there's been rejection. Holy Spirit, please would you do a work of lifting burdens, breaking through hardness of hearts, ministering your love, your grace, your acceptance into the deep places of people's souls. And Father, please help us to be those who don't judge one another. Would you keep healing us, empowering us, growing us? Help us to love and accept like you do. Give us more grace to look like the church that is in your heart and will show you to the world we live in. We ask in your name. Amen.